This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. The main version of the National Assessment of Educational Progress, or NAEP as it is called, it's also called the Nation's Report Card for that matter, it's just issued its, its second post-COVID report on student achievement in math and reading for students in fourth and eighth grade. Well, there was a first report that was focused on nine-year-olds and that's from a different version of the national assessment. But this is the biggest one. This is the one that gives us a more comprehensive picture. And this is for students in fourth and eighth grade. So the results, as many of you, I am sure, have already heard, are not good. Uh, test score performances are down from where they were in 2019 in both math and reading. And for all groups of students and for nearly every state and for nearly every large city that's been tested. To discuss these results, I have with me on the Education Exchange today, Martin West, who's a member of the National Governing Board responsible for the administration of NAEP. And he's also the academic dean at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and the editor-in-chief of Education Next. So Marty, before we dig into uh, the whys and wherefores, well, first of all, let me just say hello. Nice to see you again. I saw you yesterday. But nice to see you again today. It's great to be with you, Paul. So, Marty, before we dig into the whys and wherefores, can you can you give us some some of the key findings from the report? Yes, well, Paul, you uh, previewed them in your introduction, but NAEP scores are down substantially relative to where they were in 2019, the last administration prior to the pandemic, and they're down nearly everywhere. One key difference between this latest release of NAEP results and the prior one that you mentioned is that this release provides information not just for the nation as a whole, but for all 50 states in the District of Columbia, as well as for 26 large urban school districts that participate on their own. And each of those jurisdictions saw a statistically significant decline in at least one of the four tests that were administered. And usually, they saw declines in most, if not all, of the four tests. So I was struck not just by the magnitude of the decline, which in math in particular was very substantial, but by just how pervasive it is. I think it's fair to say that there's no major school system nationwide where achievement did not fall substantially as a result of the pandemic. So you mentioned the difference between math and reading, and that is another consistent finding that's showing up across the board for groups and states. And, and, and at the national level, it's almost twice as much. The decline is almost twice as much, maybe actually twice as much as in reading. So why is there such a big difference between uh, math and reading? Well, one of the things we've seen in education research over the past several decades is that school-based interventions tend to have larger effects on math than on reading. And one common hypothesis that's been advanced to understand that pattern is that math achievement depends more on what goes on in schools, whereas reading achievement depends, yes, on that, but also on what students experience in the home and uh, elsewhere in their lives. And so I think right now we're seeing the flip side of that. When schools are disrupted, the consequences are clearest in math. That's not to say that reading achievement was unaffected by any means. It is down substantially. But 
both on the long-term trend NAEP, which came out for nine-year-olds at the end of August, and in this latest set of results, we see much clearer and larger declines in math than in reading. But some of the results are unusual. I mean, the, the main results are probably sort of expected. We knew there was going to be learning loss. Lots of other studies are showing that as well. But um, so it didn't happen in some particular places, which uh, ended up creating a surprise. Uh, for example, in Los Angeles, the students show very little loss or some gains in, in some areas. So um, at the same time, Los Angeles has been reporting chronic absenteeism and loss of enrollments. Maybe there's a problem that NAEP has in actually getting a representative sample in 2022. I'm not saying it always does, but maybe the problems were particularly great this time. Do you have any observations on that? Well, our colleagues at the National Center for Education Statistics that are responsible for administering the NAEP, the National Assessment Governing Board that I'm on, really oversees and sets policies for the NAEP, NCES, our colleagues there do the work of actually administering the assessment. And they, of course, pay a lot of attention to the types of issues that you uh, identified. And they can report that the share of schools that participate in the, in the NAEP uh, that were supposed to, that is the schools that they identified for the sample, uh, is similar to it is in typical years. And that's also true, though there's a little bit of a slippage in the percentage of students in those schools who were supposed to participate who actually did. Now, that's true for the nation as a whole. It's also true within states, but there are some, uh, and it's also true for the districts for, for whom NCS reported results. I think the tricky thing, though, uh, is that some school systems have experienced substantial declines in enrollment and some of the large urban systems uh, are, are there as well. And so I'm pretty confident that the results are giving us an accurate picture of the students who are actually enrolled in places like Los Angeles Unified. Um, but it's possible that enrollment in the district has been affected by the pandemic, and that as a result, some of the changes between 2019 and 2022 could reflect those enrollment changes and associated demographic shifts, rather than anything going on with the quality of instruction. So that's sort of, that's an interesting point. So it could actually be that the, the NAEP data collection is just fine, but the reality out there is that you've got a different population in New York City and Los Angeles and other big cities than you had three years ago because uh, people have left the big cities to go to go elsewhere or or they've gone to other schools. So we know that there's been you know substantial changes in enrollment. We don't know the precise numbers because it's not been collected yet or or it's not been a general made generally available. But it could be that uh, we're not comparing apples to apples here. Yeah, I think that's right. And the uh, I think that's also important to keep in mind when we interpret the results for one of the other bright spots in this latest set of NAEP results, and that was the results for the Catholic school sector. So um, Catholic schools held their performance steady in three of the 
uh, for tests that were administered, they saw a bit of a decline in eighth grade math, uh, but nowhere near as large as for the schools nationwide. And I think that's encouraging. I think many people have appropriately pointed to the fact that Catholic schools uh, remained open for in-person instruction more consistently throughout the pandemic. But I think we also need to um, allow for the possibility that some of that change could reflect an influx of students from public schools who were frustrated with the educational opportunities there who uh, shifted into Catholic schools. I don't think that's the main factor, but I think it's something that we need to keep in mind just as we keep that in mind in interpreting some of the uh, patterns for large school districts. Yeah, but there's other good reasons to think that the Catholic schools would be doing better. I mean, that's not a surprising finding. That's an expected finding. I would have been shocked if I hadn't found that because the Catholic schools were open. for They were closed for a short period of time uh, when the pandemic uh, first broke out in uh, in the 20, in the spring of 2020. I, I get confused as to the years these days, but uh, but uh, they were open in the fall, and they they've never closed. And so, uh, you would have expected the Catholic schools to ha have done better. And and there and you really don't have a good reason to think that the new migrants would should necessarily be better than the ones who had the students who had been there. After all, Catholic schools have been outperforming public schools over in in general. So why do you think that the new enrollees are likely to be better than the ones already enrolled in Catholic school? Well, I think when you think about who would have the resources and the uh, commitment to change a student's uh, school over the course of the pandemic, I think it would be those who had the resources to pay for tuition and who were particularly concerned about the consequences for their child's progress. So I think there is reason to think that would be relatively uh, high achieving students who might uh, help lead to higher scores reported for Catholic schools nationwide. That being said, I fully accept your uh, broader point that uh, the fact that Catholic schools look to have weathered the storm of the pandemic a bit better is to be expected given the, their commitment to offering in-person instruction over the bulk of the pandemic. Right, and I would point out that the students in those schools already were already paying tuition. So it's not like you're getting now new students willing to pay mm -hmm. tuition where you didn't have that in the past. You've always had that in the past. So I, I still am not, I'm still confused as to why we would, because changing schools is usually harmful to students. Generally speaking, whenever you see a student change schools, whether it's within a district system or within the private system, changing schools is tough on kids. And even moving from uh, uh, elementary school to middle school can be tough on kids. So moving schools usually leads to lower performance. Here we saw, if that's really what's driving this, we're seeing higher performance. That's a very good point. And uh, I, as I said, <laughs> I think the Catholic schools are to be congratulated for the results that they uh, produced. Um, I think what's uh, disappointing is that we don't have the ability to make claims one way or the other about private schools um, more generally. Unfortunately, uh, other private schools outside of the Catholic school system don't participate in the NAEP in sufficient numbers uh, in order to allow us to report results that are nationally representative for the private school sector as a whole. 
And I think that's unfortunate. I hope actually the uh, praise that Catholic schools are getting in the current moment might lead other private schools to rethink their willingness to participate in the nation's report card. Well, I agree with you completely on that regard. The Catholic schools are to be complimented for their willingness to, uh, to actually uh, participate in a lot of testing programs that allow them to be assessed and evaluated. And they don't always come out with, uh, with high marks, uh, but they've never sort of said, okay, we're gonna pull out of this and, and just uh, do our own testing. Uh, they've, they've actually uh, uh, been a model for the private sector in general. I, I, I agree with you that that's, uh, we can hope that the other private schools are going to uh, do better. But now let's talk about the online learning because we just sort of talked about Catholic schools didn't have to go online for such a long period of time in most cases, but uh, certainly uh, charter schools did and, uh, and uh, traditional public schools did and uh, the results were not good. And a lot of people have blamed online learning. So the NAEPS results, once again, are a little surprising in that regard because the relationship doesn't show up quite as, as uh, strongly as uh, we might've expected. Well, the relationship doesn't show up as strongly as we might have expected if we look for that relationship by comparing the changes in achievement across the 50 states and the District of Columbia. So uh, a variety of researchers have tried to gather good data on the mode of instruction in place statewide uh, over the course of the 2020-21 school year. Emily Oster at Brown University has done that, Nat Malkus at the American Enterprise Institute. And if you take their state level measures of the pervasiveness of remote instruction or the availability of in-person instruction. And you say, did those states where remote instruction was most common experience larger declines over the course of the pandemic, you see a pretty weak relationship. It's, it's there in math, it's statistically significant, but it's not, uh, doesn't appear to be the dominant factor and it's really not there at all when it comes to changes in reading achievement. And I do not think that casts doubt on uh, claims that remote instruction was much less effective for the vast majority of students who experienced it during the pandemic. We have very good studies uh, from within specific states comparing students' progress in remote and in-person uh, instruction. And all of that evidence suggests that remote instruction was a disaster. I think what we uh, have learned is that when it comes to what students actually experienced, um, there was actually more variation within states than across states. So even those states where there was a statewide push to get schools to reopen for in-person instruction, uh, many families in some cases didn't send their children back to school. They took advantage of the remote options that were available for students pretty much everywhere uh, due to their concerns about safety. And so, uh, again, I don't think that the NAEP data tell us that these declines are not due to the shift to remote instruction. They just show us that there was a lot more variation within states than across states in what was happening. Well, that's a, that's a possibility. Now, the way to find out is to really dig into the NAEP data. And you can do that before, for NAEP's uh, 
years uh, up until 2017, but the National Assessment or the, the Department of Education hasn't released any information to researchers since 2017. And yet at the same time, you have the, uh, the US Secretary of Education saying, we need researchers to come in here and really dig out and, and un, you know, uh, solve these puzzles for us. But unless they are going to uh, provide the data, there's no way that the researchers can do what the U.S. Secretary of Education is asking. So why is it that the U.S. Department of Education cannot make this data available to researchers respecting the privacy of individuals for six years after 2017? So 2019 data, that's four years later, it's still not available. How long are we going to have to wait for this 2022 data? So I don't know the answer to exactly how long. I know that my colleagues and I on the National Assessment Governing Board have been trying to speed up the release of restricted use NAEP data to qualified researchers. Again, it's possible to do that while protecting confidentiality and addressing those concerns. Uh, so I, I don't know, but I share your frustration about the time lag and think that we should be doing everything possible uh, in order to try to speed that up. But I don't think, uh, to go back to what I think motivated your question, I don't think ultimately that the NAEP data are going to be the most useful resource for evaluating the effectiveness of remote instruction. Again, I think we already have plenty of evidence on that score and that we don't need to wait until whenever we're able to make the data available to researchers in order to learn from the evidence that we already have. And what we've learned from the evidence that we already have is that we need to uh, keep in-person instruction uh, available uh, whenever possible. All right, well, so the other thing that's sort of difficult for the layperson to figure out is just what these numbers mean. You know, there's this decline of six points or three points, but what, is it, what does that mean? Um, <laughs> how, how, how can you, can you translate these numbers into something that's interpretable by an ordinary uh, reader? Well, let's talk about the decline in math scores nationwide at eighth grade. That was a eight point decline uh, on average. And uh, one of the things that um, we like to do as researchers is convert those types of scale score declines into standard deviations. So say, how large are they relative to the overall amount of variation in achievement, the difference between very high performing students and very low performing students? And if we look at it uh, through that lens, it's right around 20% of a standard deviation. And uh, then how can we make sense of that number? Well, uh, we can look at other sources and, and realize that students typically make in the middle school grades about a quarter of a standard deviation's worth of progress over the course of a school year. And so that leads me to think that this decline that we've seen in eighth grade math is, you know, almost uh, a year's worth of learning. Uh, and then the declines in the other grades and subject areas were a bit smaller than that. Well, that's really helpful. So you would sort of say, at least in the eighth grade, we have uh, uh, probably a, a year's worth of learning to make up. Now, how are we going to make this up? 
I mean, uh, it, it, is more money going to do it? Um, th there's a lot of money out there now because states have a lot more revenue coming in from the income tax, from the property tax, and then they got this very large uh, COVID uh, makeup money. Uh, they have so much money they can't spend it all. So what should they be doing in order to really bring students back up from the uh, up to a year's worth of learning that they've lost? Well, I think you're right that one of the interesting things about the conversations right now is that people aren't pointing first to a lack of resources because school districts are awash in resources, at least for the time being. And so I think the question is, how can they best deploy those resources in order to help students make up lost ground? Uh, I don't think there's any one silver bullet, but I'm someone who thinks that um, at least in the short run, there's no substitute for increasing the amount of instructional time that students are exposed to. And so whether that comes through extended school days, whether that comes through extended school years, the offering of vacation programming, um, I think that needs to be part of the solution. Now, one of the challenging things about vacation programming, summer school and the like, is that not all students tend to um, take up those opportunities even when they're available. And I think that therefore can't be all that we do. I think we also need to think about strategies that would take place in the context of the school day. Uh, and there, I think the most promising evidence is for the value of high dosage tutoring. So increasing the intensity of instructional time, perhaps rather than the amount of it. Uh, the challenge districts are facing there is identifying qualified people to, um, to work in schools and to provide that additional instruction. As you know, the labor market is extraordinarily tight and uh, districts are struggling to, um, to, to hire. But I, I really, as I look nationwide, don't yet see the urgency of activity that I might expect given the magnitude of the declines in achievement that we've seen and what we know about the consequences for students to experience those types of declines. Well, I'm a little bit more of a magic bullet guy than that. I, mm -hmm. I think it's it's nice to say, okay, we gotta do a lot of things, but I think there's one thing that really could do more than any other thing, and that is tutoring. I, I, I believe in tutoring. I play tennis. I could never play tennis if I hadn't had somebody teaching me how to hit the ball on a one-to-one -one basis. I'm just not very athletic. I could never have learned that. And so I think that's in true in general. If you've got somebody working with you on an individual basis, you can learn a lot. And I just don't see the resources being poured into tutoring, which given the amount of resources that's available, you could, you could probably provide tutoring uh, at scale for, for almost anybody who wanted it right now. Well, as I said, I think tutoring needs to be part of the uh, toolkit. I think the challenge the districts are facing, as I understand it, is in hiring people. But I agree with you that I have not seen districts make, uh, I don't know, uh, approach that the task of solving that problem with sufficient urgency. And I think there are lots of them that haven't even made that attempt. And so I share your enthusiasm for that strategy, and I hope that... Um, districts will find a way to make it work.
Well, you know, the problem is, is they say, well, we got to have a qualified tutor, you know, and then they define the qualification as they have to be certified. Then they can't find enough certified teachers. But all you have to do is say, if we get a college educated person to do the tutoring, that person should be able to provide the, uh, the service. But, so they could build these artificial restrictions that prevent them from doing things that really could help kids. So that really raises the question, do schools really care about whether kids are learning or are they just care, caring about maintaining their own operation? Well, I think school systems and to be fair, parents have really uh, focused their energies mainly on returning to normal. I think uh, that's what uh, school systems uh, want to do. And if we look at data on parents, even from our own Education Next survey, Paul, we don't see parents feeling a lot of urgency about intensive efforts to uh, get their children caught up academically. And so I guess I share your view that school districts are um, not too concerned, that they're not approaching this task with a great deal of urgency, but I think we need to um, uh, ask why parents are not. Uh, now, that may be because the information that they're receiving from school districts is misleading as to the nature of students' progress, and that may be part of the explanation as well. But I think we need to look both at what districts are doing and what parents are saying that they want districts to do and think about how we change both of those. Well, thank you, Marty. All of this is fascinating discussion, and all of this is going to be on the table for people to think about as we go forward. And of course, I uh, am grateful that you're providing this service uh, to the country by uh, making sure that the national assessment is moving forward and has actually been very informative and helpful uh, to get all of this information on the table as quickly as it has. So uh, thank you, Marty, for all of that and for speaking with me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for the opportunity. I've been speaking with Martin West, a member of the National Governing Board responsible for the administration of the National Assessment of Educational Progress. He is also the Academic Dean at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. A new podcast is released on the Education X website on Monday each week at noon Eastern Time.